Hello, everybody. Welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. Welcome back. Man, it feels so great. I'm. It's been a long time coming, and here we are. Chapter 7, The Man on Putney Hill. Thank you so much for waiting, everyone. And uh, for those of you who, who have just come to this podcast uh, here, uh, I mean, there hasn't been any wait. What are you talking about? Uh, this has been completely consistent, and there hasn't absolutely been a global pandemic, a return to work, or anything similar to that that might have put an impact on the production of this podcast. Uh, that, that's insane. Insane to suggest that. Are you, are you okay? Join me in saying, are you okay? If you are starting at this chapter... Oh boy, you're into the second series and you're over halfway through that bit. We're very much, we're entering the, the, the final section of The War of the Worlds. We're in the last few chapters now. Uh, and it feels great to be here doing it for you guys. And let me tell you, this chapter, ooh, it's a whopper. This may actually be the longest episode that we do. Um, which I hope kind of goes some way to explaining why it's taken so long to make it. Uh, I'd also like to say a huge thank you to everybody who's come along to see my live show so far. It's mad that they're, they're out and in the world. Uh, Eddie Hurst's comedy version of Jeff Wayne's musical version of H.G. Wells' literary version by Orson Welles' radio version and Steven Spielberg's film version of The War of the Worlds, uh, which, of course, is the live accompaniment to this podcast, or the podcast is the audio accompaniment. Make make a choice which way you want that to happen. I had an amazing show in Leicester. That I, some people came from Manchester, which is where I am from. We we could have shared a car, which is amazing. And I know other people travelled from really far afield. So thank you so much for all of you for, for, for visiting for that. We've also got some more shows coming up uh, on the 16th of April at the Museum of Comedy in London. That's like across the road from the British Museum. Uh, I don't know why that's significant. It is to me. It's important to me, apparently. Um, and also, I've got some in Brighton. I'm going to be in Brighton at Electric Arcade uh, on the 4th, 5th and 6th of June. Um, I'm, I'm waiting on Buxton Fringe stuff to come back if you're looking for something more Northwest way. And also, I will be in the Edinburgh Fringe, 16th to 24th of August. A whole week of Eddie Hurst giving War of the Worlds nonsense at the Mash House. A famous venue. It was the venue I was at last time. I'm in a, in, a, in a different room that I think will suit much better. So please do come along, especially if you can to the London one, which is much sooner and also had to get postponed because I, I, I got COVID. Uh, and let me tell you, I, 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 maybe this is a controversial opinion, but I'm against it. I think it's awful. Uh, terrible. Terrible virus. Not keen on that one. Of all the invisible tiny life on our planet, that can that one can absolutely get in the bin. So that's 16th of April, Saturday, 7pm. Please come along. Anyway, back into the podcast proper. So uh, this chapter, I thought as a way to catch us all up, it might be useful for me to crunch some numbers to show how Earth's doing against the Martians so far. So here we go. Narrators. Uh, 1.5 if you in- include the bit where he started talking about what his brother said to him. Uh, Martian cylinders that have arrived. 10. Martians in there arrived. 40. Martians that have been killed by humans. Uh, three to four at a push, but it was also kind of an accident. Uh, humans that have been killed by Martians. That is, let's, no, that's sad. Let's not do that. Uh, days overall that have passed so far. 16. Uh, dogs that have, have been attempted to be eaten by the narrator. One. Okay. And of course, I, I think the most important uh, number here for you guys is uh, bikes learned to ride. Still zero. Still a big zero. All right, so I think we're up to speed there. Uh, is there anything else to say? Yeah, this this chapter sees a, a, a fond return of a fan favourite. Has he changed? 
Uh, I mean, you would in a Martian invasion, to be fair. Uh, we also have a, a guest on this show, which I'm really excited about. It's uh, Jack Evans, who has the fantastic podcast Mandatory Redistribution Party and does all sorts of alternative comedy stuff in Manchester, including the Jane Edwards show, uh, which he's, he's great. I'd recommend you getting involved. That's why I invited him onto the podcast. And here we talk about, uh, as he is a big old sci-fi head, uh, a lot of dystopian futures and what his ideal one would be, uh, which he thinks are actually all right when you consider it and which ones are pretty terrible uh, even if you consider you could throw a nintendo switch into it so let's get involved in it uh, please do like subscribe follow the podcast on whatever there is uh, you can follow me on twitter at eddie hurst i'm on instagram at eddie hurst it's edy hurst and also facebook there uh, check out tickets for everything and i'll see you at the end thanks guys bye chapter seven the man on putney hill i spent that night in the inn that stands at the top of putney hill sleeping in a made bed for the first time since my flight to Leatherhead. I will not tell the needless trouble I had breaking into that house. Afterwards, I found the front door was just on the latch. Cheeky bit of observational comedy, innit? You know, when you're trying to, trying to open a door and it turns out just to, uh, just to try the old handle. Let's, uh, let's boot up a little sound effect to celebrate. Beautiful. Nor how I ransacked every room for food. Until just on the verge of despair, in what seemed to me like a servant's bedroom, I found a rat nord crust and two tins of pineapple. Jackpot! Mind you, I mean, outside of the rat nord bread, two tins of pineapple does sound like a, a, pretty, a pretty standard prize on a tombola, right? The place had already been searched and emptied. In the bar, I afterwards found some biscuits and sandwiches that had been overlooked. The latter I could not eat. They were too rotten. But the former not only stayed my hunger, but filled my pockets. I lit no lamps, fearing some Martian might come beating that part of London for food in the night. Before I went to bed, I had an interval of restlessness, and prowled from window to window, peering out for some sign of these monsters. I slept little. As I lay in bed, I found myself thinking consecutively, a thing I do not remember to have done since my last argument with the curate. During all the intervening time, my mental condition had been a hurrying succession of vague emotional states, or a sort of stupid receptivity. But in the night, my brain, reinforced, I suppose, by the food I had eaten, grew clear again. And I thought... Reckon he's going to think about all them dogs and cats he tried to eat on the way here. Maybe. Who knows? I mean, sometimes when you get hangry, you do think mad thoughts. So, uh, let's see if he's going to go into it. Imagine that, that this chapter is just him going like, Why did I try to eat that dog? <laughs> the man on Putney Hill, comma, has a good think about his intrusive thoughts from before, even though he was kind of dealing with trauma, so even though we're kind of judging him in the light of day, maybe maybe he's going through something that we can't comprehend. I don't know. Let's find out anyway. Three things struggled for possession of my mind. The killing of the curate, the whereabouts of the Martians, and the possible fate of my wife. Yeah, absolutely, that's your uh, third priority there, uh, your wife. Yeah, sure, sure, that's not a surprise at this point, is it? The former gave me no sensation of horror or remorse to recall. I saw it simply as a thing done. A memory infinitely disagreeable, but quite without the quality of remorse. I saw myself then as I see myself now, driven step by step towards that hasty blow. The creature of a sequence of accidents leading inevitably to that. Um, I don't 
know if anyone's noticed, uh, it's a little easter egg I've been doing for myself in the deep dives and stuff where I like to drop a little quote from uh, sci-fi writer Kurt Vonnegut's works into some of the bits I've been doing. If you listen through, you'll see there's maybe uh, five, six, I think maybe even seven. Whoa, seven? You're kidding me. Possibly. Uh, throughout it. But n- now we've uh, finally come full circle and I think H.G. Wells has actually... Put his own little reference to Kurt Vonnegut in here. Uh, is, uh, this sounds a lot like the famous quote from Sirens of Titan, which I'll, uh, I'll, I'll let the song by Al Stewart say. Because this is a thing that rock stars used to do back in the day. <laughs> they'd, they'd, like, uh, they'd, they'd write a song about a book they liked, uh, which I, I, I love. You know, you get Kate Bush Wuthering Heights, it's unlikely that you're going to get Harry Styles' Little Women coming out anytime soon. But, you know, Harry, if you are a listener, you know, the option's there, why not do it? But keep away from War of the Worlds, alright? I felt no condemnation. Yet the memory, static, unprogressive, haunted me. In the silence of the night, with that sense of the nearness of God that sometimes comes into the stillness and the darkness, I stood my trial my only trial, for that moment of wrath and fear. I retraced every step of our conversation from the moment when I had found him crouching beside me, heedless of my thirst, and pointing to the fire and smoke that steamed up from the ruins of Weybridge. We had been incapable of cooperation. Grim chance had taken no heed of that. Had I foreseen, I should have left him in Halliford. But I did not foresee, and crime is to foresee and do. And I set this down as I have set all this story down. As it was, there were no witnesses. All these things I might have concealed. But I set it down, and the reader must form his judgement as he will. I mean, the thought hadn't really occurred to me until now, but... Do you reckon the narrator actually killed the curate? Right, like, he's... you know, he's talking about like, oh, I didn't have to write all this down. I didn't have to put all this long-winded explanation of how he died down. But I have, and I think you'll find that you will judge me fairly for that. It sounds like he murdered him and he's making it up now, right? That's not just me. Maybe I've been spending too much time with him, but I, I think there's something wrong here. You know, he's he started to interfere with animals, and he's uh, he, he, he's he, the one person that he spent any amount of time with is uh, is died. In, in circumstances that only he can relate to us. I mean, nobody even asked him, did he did he die? He could have just said, oh, no, I, le- I left him alone for, for weeks. But no, he mentioned, no, he definitely died near me. So if you find any fingerprints on him, they might be mine, because we did have a little bit of a fight, we did have a little bit of a tussle, but I did not kill him. I did, I didn't kill, he, he fell into the Martian's hands. Not, 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 not on the, 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 the blade that I was holding, but I did hit him quite a lot. So if, if, he, if he's alive and he says, I tried to kill him, I did not. But the, the Martians tried to kill him. The, the, it was, yes, the Martians. That's what it feels like to me a little bit, at least. And when, by an effort, I had set aside that picture of a prostate body, I faced the problem of the Martians and the fate of my wife. For the former, I had no data. I could imagine a hundred things. And so, unhappily, I could for the latter. And suddenly, that night became terrible. Ah, it was going so great before now. He'd found a half-eaten sandwich, some gone-off biscuits, two tins of pineapple. He'd remembered he'd murdered a guy. Oh, now this is what tips it over. Ah, poor lad. I found myself sitting up in bed, staring at the dark, 
I found myself praying that the heat ray might have suddenly and painlessly struck her out of being. Since the night of my return from Leverhead, I had not prayed. I had uttered prayers. Fetish prayers had prayed as heathens muttered charms when I was in extremity. But now I prayed indeed, pleading steadfastly and sanely, face to face with the darkness of God. Strange night! Strangest in this, that so soon as dawn had come, I, who had talked with God, crept out of the house like a rat leaving its hiding place, a creature scarcely larger, an inferior animal, a thing that for any passing whim of our masters might be hunted and killed. Absolutely classic Englishman attitude there. These Martians haven't been here a month and already he's like, Ooh, our masters, the Martians, please don't kill me like a dirty rat. Ooh. Also, uh, for that fetish prayer bit, like, because I know it's hanging there, innit? We need to mention it. I was, I was, I can't find the explaining lad anywhere, so, um, I kind of don't want to alarm him, because he feels like he's been going through quite a lot recently. Um, so a fetish, uh, it means as in, like, a, a, a sort of inanimate object that people worship, like a sort of idol, like an idol, you know, as in don't worship false idols, uh, that sort of thing. So I think that's what he means when he says fetish prayers. It's like... Um, he's praying to a, to a false thing. It's just within that moment he's saying like, oh, wow, wish, I, wish, I, wish things weren't like that, rather than like, I, I fundamentally need to address what's going on. You know, does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. Anyway, back to the book. Perhaps they also prayed confidently to God. Surely, if we have learned nothing else, this war has taught us pity. Pity for those witless souls that suffer our dominion. Just a heads up, if anyone, for reasons absolutely beyond me, are using this as a way to try and skip out on uh, reading this book for GCSE or book reports or whatever, uh, chuck that in. Chuck that in. I reckon that's going to be pretty good. Pity those witless souls suffer our dominion. It comes up in the book a bit, doesn't it? Anytime he talks about animals, it's kind of like, the Martians are mean to us, but maybe we're mean to people too. And why don't you think about that? That's what I imagine he's saying in that exact accent. The morning was bright and fine and the eastern sky glowed pink and was fretted with little golden clouds. In the road that runs from the top of Putney Hill to Wimbledon was a number of poor vestiges of the panic torrent that must have poured Londonward on the Sunday night after the fighting began. There was a little two-wheeled cart inscribed with the name of Thomas Lobb, greengrocer, New Malden, with a smashed, with a smashed wheel and an abandoned tin truck. There was a straw hat trampled in there was a straw hat trampled into the now-hardened mud, and at the top of West Hill, a lot of bloodstained glass about the overturned water trough. Real name alert! I'm really getting my money's worth out of that big alarm I bought for this episode. Look, we know H.G. Wells at this point. If you've given somebody a full name, what's going on there? Like, he barely gives them even a first name. So I thought, Thomas Lobb, who's that? It turns out he, was, he wasn't a greengrocer, he was a botanist in the 1840s who died in 1894 and he gathered plants for the nurseries of a place called Veach. So he was like an academic, so it makes sense that the HG um, Wells would have at least studied him in some way, uh, being a biologist. Uh, a little, little tip of the heart there, so... Um, there you go. You know, like in video games sometimes, or, or in films, you get like little references to other films. That's what this is, but uh, instead of like a, a film that's coming out, it's just a botanist. Just a botanist, hiding there on the little smashed cart. My movements were languid. My plans of the vaguest. 
I had an idea of going to Leatherhead, though I certainly knew that there I had the poorest chance of finding my wife. Certainly, unless death had overtaken them suddenly, my cousins and she would have fled thence. But it seemed to me I might find or learn there whither the Surrey people had fled. I knew I wanted to find my wife, that my heart ached for her and the world of men. He couldn't even last a whole sentence of just saying he loved his wife. Could he, he, he couldn't do it. <laughs> he was trying his best. He's like, oh, I ache for my wife. And, and other humans also. <laughs> but I had no clear idea of how the finding might be done. I was also sharply aware now of my intense loneliness. From the corner I went, under cover of a thicket of trees and bushes, to the edge of Wimbledon Common, stretching wide and far. Underground, overground, round the red weed, the narrator's in Wimbledon Common, sadly. Trying to watch out for Martian tripod signs Just being glad that his wife's left behind No, you don't care for it, it's sweating No, let's call this, this Let's mark this one up as a failure We'll just, we'll make a joke about tennis or something instead That dark expanse was lit in patches by yellow gorse and broom There was no red weed to be seen And as I prowled, hesitatingly On the verge of the open the sun rose, flooding it all with light and vitality. I came upon a busy swarm of little frogs in a swampy place among the trees. I stopped to look at them, drawing a lesson from their stout resolve to live, and presently, turning suddenly, with an odd feeling of being watched, I beheld something crouching amid a clump of bushes. I stood regarding this. I say, hello there, bushes. Good to, good to see you. Kind regards. Regard of this of the season, I'm, I'm ever so lonely. I made a step towards it, and it rose up and became a man armed with a cutlass. Like I know a cutlass probably at that time was like a standard weapon, but all I can think about is that this is a pirate, and we're getting a pirate crossover, and there's going to be a pirate in War of the Worlds, and so there's like pirates, and maybe they steal tripods or something. I don't know. I'm really excited. I approached him slowly. He stood silent and motionless, regarding me. Yo ho, my hearty! Kind regards, uh, regards of the season. I, I'm ever so lonely. As I drew nearer, I perceived he was dressed in clothes as dusty and filthy as my own. He looked, indeed, as though he had been dragged through a culvert. Hey, everybody, it's me, the explaining lad. I'm back. Ba -ba -ba -da! That's what it's going to be, the little theme tune for me. Uh, I'm fine, thank you for asking me. Some of you might be like, but you seem so distraught before. And my answer is, well, progression in healing is not a single line. It's cyclical. And today, as what feels like being a metaphysical figure who has a lot more mythology than we probably started out in the podcast expecting, it's a good day. Anyway, we're here to talk about culverts. A culvert is, it's a tunnel that usually goes over like a road or a train and it has steam in or like sewage or water or just some, some gunk, nasty gunk. 
so when um, you see that this pirate that I'm, I, I, I sure we're all excited to hear more about, you know, did he, did he get, was he on the Thunder Trail like he got on there as a story? I don't know. I'll save that for, for later. Uh, when he gets pulled through, it's like he's been pulled through a poo pipe. Poo pipe. So it makes a little more, you know, it's a bit, bit of a dig. Really? Anyway, it's not my job to judge it. I'm just here to explain. Sayonara! Nearer, I distinguished the green slime of ditches, mixing with the pale drab of dried clay and shiny, coaly patches. His black hair fell over his eyes, and his face was dark and dirty and sunken, so that at first I did not recognise him. There was a red cut across the lower part of his face. Stop! He cried when I was within ten yards of him. And I stopped. His voice was hoarse. Where do you come from? He said. I'm just going to say it now. It is going to be me doing the voice of the artilleryman as well. Uh, it's, it's a lot of lines in this chapter that he goes through. And uh, quite frankly, I'm going to have my best old bash at David Essex's voice that he does in War of the Worlds. Is it going to be better than Ricky Wilson's in the new one? Mm, maybe. But seriously, this might be the one time that I don't want to know in comments or messages what you think of it. I thought, surveying him. I come from Mortlake, I said. I was buried near the pit the Martians made about their cylinder. I have worked my way out and escaped. There is no food about here, he said. This is my country. All this hill down to the river and back to Clapham and up to the edge of the common. There is only food for one. Which way are you going? I mean, clearly this is a sort of Cockney accent, isn't it? That's what David Essex has. He's a guy from the East End, so that's a... But then, then Essex, like it's the last name, like a stage name, and that, that's that's the north, northeast. That's not in London. That's out of it. So I mean, look, look. There's a lot of decisions that were made in this voice, and I've picked a lane, and I'm not leaving it. I answered slowly. I don't know. I said. I have been buried in the ruins of a house thirteen or fourteen days. I don't know what has happened. He looked at me doubtfully, then stared and looked with a changed expression. I've no wish to stop about here, said I. I think I shall go to Leatherhead. For my wife was there. He shot out a pointing finger. It is you, said he. The man from Woking. And you weren't killed in Weybridge? I recognised him at that moment. You are the artilleryman who came into my garden. What? It's like a returning character in a sitcom, isn't it? Who was expecting this guy? I mean, of, of everyone, he was the only person who at any point thought, uh, I should probably look for some biscuits in a building before I leave it. So, you know what? Odds are on that he's going to be the survivor. Good luck, he said. We are the lucky ones. Fancy you. He put out a hand, and I took it. I crawled up a drain, he said. But they didn't kill everyone. And after they went away, I got off towards Walton across the fields. But it's not 16 days altogether. And your hair is grey. He looked over his shoulder suddenly. Only a rook, he said. One gets to know that birds have shadows these days. This is a bit open. Let's crawl under those bushes and talk. I mean, this is great. He said his wife's probably dead. He said he can't believe that he survived. He's told him that he's aged awfully in less than less than 15 days. And now he's suggested that they both go and hide under the bushes together. I can't read this guy. Is he nagging him? What's going on here? Have you seen any Martians? I said. Since I crawled out, they've gone away across London, he said. I guess they've got a bigger camp there. Overnight, all over there, Hampstead Way. The sky is alive with their lights. It's like a great city 
And in the glare, you can just see them moving. By daylight, you can't. But nearer, I haven't seen them. He counted on his fingers. Five days. Then I saw a couple across Hammersmith Way, carrying something big. And the night before last... He stopped and spoke impressively. It was just a matter of lights. But it was something in the air. I believe they've built a flying machine. And are learning to fly. I stopped, on hands and knees. For we had come to the bushes. Fly? Yes, he said. Fly. I went on into a little bower and sat down. Oi, oi, it's me again, the explaining lad. I'm feeling great. I've been for a run, I had a good sleep, and all of my issues have been cured. I don't need any additional support at all. Thank you for asking, though. I don't know why you'd ask for such a a bower, it's a, it's, a, it's a little attractive dwelling or retreat that's made from tree vines or, or, or like tree boughs, you know, like the branches and stuff. It's just a little, like a tree house, that sort of thing. Anyway, the sort of place that you'd have a great rest, a little bit of, I don't know, mindfulness, and just take your mind off the fact that perhaps you are a metaphysical entity that is made over and over getting crushed and rebirth. It is all over with humanity, I said. If they can do that, they will simply go round the world. He nodded. They will. But it will relieve things over here a bit. And besides, he looked at me. Aren't you satisfied it is up with humanity? I am. We're down. We're beat. I stared. Strange as it may seem, I had not arrived at this fact. A fact perfectly obvious so soon as he spoke. I had still held a vague hope. Rather, I had kept a lifelong habit of mind. He repeated his words. We're beat! They carried absolute conviction. It's all over, he said. They've lost one. Just one. And they've made their footing good and crippled the greatest power in the world. They've walked all over us. The death of that one at Weybridge was an accident. And these are only pioneers. They kept on coming. These green stars... I've seen none these five or six days, but I've no doubt they're falling somewhere every night. Nothing's to be done. We're under. We're beat. These are the four hugely talented gentlemen performing, nominated for best performance by a leading actor in a play. They are Brian Bedford for his brilliant performance in the Moliere comedies. Ralph Fiennes, who may be the most Unique Hamlet ever to have turned up on Broadway. Roger Reese. And Eddie Hearst. For his multiple comic roles in a... Eddie Hearst podcast version of The War of the World. And the winner of the 1990 Tony Award for leading actor in a podcast is... Eddie Hearst. I made him no answer. I sat staring before me, trying in vain to devise some countervailing thought. Great idea, narrator. That's exactly what this man who's clearly on edge needs. What he needs in this scenario is the devil's advocate, somebody to disagree with him. Perfect. I'm sure that's really going to calm him down. This isn't a war, said the artilleryman. It was never a war, any more than there's a war between man and ants. Suddenly, I recalled the night in the observatory. After the tenth shot, they fired no more. At least until the first cylinder came. How do you know? Said the artilleryman. 
I explained. He thought. Something wrong with the gun, he said. But what if there is? They'll get it right again. And even if there's a delay, how can it alter the end? It's just men and ants. There's the ants. Builds their cities. Live their lives. Have wars. Revolutions. Until the men want them out of the way. And then they go out of the way. That's what we are now. Just ants. Uh, only... Yes, I said. We're eatable ants. Well, clearly somebody didn't read the 2030 report on future protein sources by the EU, or they'd know very well that ants are also eatable ants. You're going to be eating bugs. Eating bugs. So now who's the... Who's the idiot? But, uh, excuse me while I just grab a few more slugs. We sat looking at each other. And what will they do with us? I said. That's what I've been thinking, he said. That's what I've been thinking. After Whitebridge, I went south, thinking. I saw what was up. Most of the people were hard at it, squealing and exciting themselves. But I'm not so fond of squealing. I've been in the sight of death once or twice. I'm not an ornamental soldier. And at the best and worst, death. It's just death. And it's the man that keeps on thinking comes through. I saw everybody tracking away sad. Says I, they went last this way. And I turned right back. I went for the Martians like a sparrow goes for man. All around, he waved a hand to the horizon. They're starving in heaps, bolting, treading on each other. He saw my face and halted awkwardly. No doubt lots who have had money gone away to France, he said. He seemed to hesitate whether to apologise. Met my eyes and went on. There's food all about here. Canned things in shops, wines, spirits, mineral waters. And the water mains and the drains are empty. Well, I was telling you what I was thinking. Here's intelligent things, I said. And it seems they want us for food. First, they'll smash us up. Sheeps, machines, guns, cities, all the order and organisation. All that will go. If we were the size of ants, we might pull through. But we're not. It's all too bulky to stop. That's the first certainty. Hey? I assented. It is. I've thought it's all out. Very well. Then, next, at present, we're caught as we're wanted. A Martian has only to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run. And I saw one, one day, out by Wandsworth, picking houses to pieces and rooting among the wreckage. But they won't keep on doing that. So soon as they've settled all our guns and ships, and smashed our railways, and done all the things they are doing over there, they will begin catching us systematically. Picking the best and storing us in cages and things. That's what they'll start doing in a bit. Lord, they haven't begun on us yet. Don't you see that? Not begun? I exclaimed. Not begun. All that's happened so far is through our not having the sense to keep quiet. Worrying them with guns and such foolery and losing our heads, and rushing off in crowds to where there wasn't any more safety than where we were. They don't want to bother us yet. They're making their things. Making all the things they couldn't bring with them. Getting things ready for the rest of their people. Very likely that's why the cylinders have stopped for a bit. For fear of hitting those who are here. And instead of our rushing about blind, on the howl, or getting dynamite on the chance of busting them up, We've got to fix ourselves up according to the new state of affairs. That's how I figure it out. It isn't quite according to what man wants for his species, but it's about what the facts point to. And that's the principle I acted upon. 
cities, nations, civilization, progress. It's all over. The game's up. We're beat. But if that is so, what is there to live for? The artilleryman looked at me for a moment. There won't be any more blessed concerts for a million years or so. There won't be any Royal Academy of Arts and no nice little feeds at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I reckon the game is up. If you've got any drawing room manners or a dislike to eating peas with a knife or dropping H's, you better chuck them away. There ain't no further use. You hear that? You're gonna be eating peas with a knife for the rest of your life, you little shit, and you're gonna like it. You mean, I mean that men like me are going on living for the sake of the breed. I tell you, I'm grim set on living. And if I'm not mistaken, you'll show what's inside you've got too before long. We aren't gonna be exterminated, and I don't mean to be caught either, and tamed and fattened and bred like a thundering ox. Oh, fancy those brown creepers. I'm not saying that I want to be fattened and bred, but I am saying it'd be pretty cool to be a thundering ox, right? It's like, you know, like when Zeus in mythology turns into a bull. That's literally that, a thundering ox. That is, and that's pretty good. That's all, you know, I'm not saying that I want the Martians to invade and turn humans into, into farm animals, but uh, all I'm saying is uh, behind every cloud, potentially a thundering ox. You don't mean to say... I do. I'm going on. Under their feet. I've got it planned. I've thought it out. We men are beat. We don't know enough. We've got to learn before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep independent while we learn. See? That's what has to be done. I stared, astonished, and stirred profoundly by the man's resolution. Great God! cried I. But you are a man indeed! And suddenly I gripped his hand. Please let me be your underground mole wife artilleryman. Hey, hey, he said with his eyes shining. I've thought of that, eh? Go on, I said. Well, those who mean to escape their catching must get ready. I'm getting ready. Mind you, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts. And that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. I had my doubts. You're slender. I didn't know that it was you, you see. Or just how you'd been buried. All oh, these, the sort of people who lived in these houses. All those damn little clerks that used to live down that way. They'd be no good. Has the artilleryman read the game or something? He's, uh, he's doing a lot of fat shaming. Slagging off what sounds like the social background that the narrator's from in a real sort of like, oh, you're all right, but I don't like them. Textbook negging. I'm actually starting to feel sorry for the guy now. I think he's getting into a bit of a toxic relationship here. Oh well. They haven't any spirit in them. No proud dreams and no proud lusts. And a man who hasn't one or the other. Lord, what is he but funk and precautions? They just used to skedaddle off to work. I've seen hundreds of them. Beer breakfast in hand. Running wild and shining to catch their season ticket train for fear they'd get dismissed if they didn't. Working at businesses, they were afraid to take the trouble to understand. Skedaddling back for fear they wouldn't be in time for dinner. Keeping indoors after dinner for fear of the back streets. And sleeping with the wives they married. Not because they wanted them, but because they had a bit of money that would make for safety in their one little miserable skedaddle through the world. Lives insured and a bit invested for fear of accidents. 
know this isn't the takeaway from this speech that he's making, but he's really uh, pumping the gas on the word skedaddle here, isn't he? It feels like... Has he got royalties on that? Is that like his his new plan? His nation's going to be skedaddle or something? Maybe H.G. Wells, that was like his word of the day when he was writing the chapter. I don't know. And on Sundays, fear of the hereafter, as if hell was built for rabbits. Well, the Martians will just be a godsend to these. Nice roomy cages... Fattening food, careful breeding, no worry! After a week or so chasing about the fields and lands on empty stomachs, they'll come and be caught cheerfully. They'll be quite glad after a bit. They'll wonder what people did before there were Martians to take care of them. And the bar loafers and mashers and singers, I can imagine them, I can imagine them, he said, with a sort of sombre gratification. As both a bar loafer and a singer, Maybe a masher? I don't know, I don't, I don't know what, what that is. Let me have a look. It's, oh, it's sort of like a fashionable man, a bit like a dandy. That sort of equipment. I'm, I'm not one of them. But anyway, I, I'm, I'm offended. You know, say what you like about the people who skedaddle off with their season tickets and skedaddle back home and don't want to go out because of back streets at night. Uh, but, you know, when you come for the loafers and the singers, that's when that's when you've got me on the other side of the list, of the uh, the against list. So, uh, you better think twice, uh, artilleryman, because I'm a very powerful enemy. I bet that's really shit him up. There'll be any amount of sentiment and religion loose among them. There's hundreds of things I saw with my eyes that I've only begun to see clearly these last few days. Now, that's a red flag in a red flag forest. There's lots will take things as they are. Fat and stupid. And lots will be worried by a sort of feeling that it's all wrong. And that they ought to be doing something. Now, whenever things are so that a lot of people feel they ought to be doing something, the weak, and those who go for weak with a lot of complicated thinking, always make some sort of do-nothing religion. Very pious and superior. And submit to persecution and the will of the Lord. Very likely you've seen submit... Very likely you've seen the same thing. It's energy in a gale of funk and turned clean inside out. These cages will be full of psalms and hymns and piety, and those of a less simple sort will work in a bit of, what is it, eroticism. I just wanted to drop in here and say uh, a reminder, I guess, that this was a chapter that wasn't put into the uh, monthly releases of this. This was a book-only uh, chapter that H.G. Wells added in, and you, you can kind of see, see why, right? Like he's uh, slagging off religion, He's having a go at people with uh, nine-to-five jobs. The bar loafers, as we've already covered, he has no time for them uh, through, through this sort of flawed, uh, angry man. And I, I, I guess maybe this is a, a free-reign way for him to, to sort of take a pop shop at society. But also, it, it's interesting because if you look at H.G. Wells' life, he was never a particularly faithful man to his, uh, to his wives, uh, which he had many of. He also had many secret lovers, which I'm sure in a later episode we'll go into deeper. So it's, it, it, it just feels, you know, like it's not, it's not like he actually believes all the things he's saying here, but it definitely, definitely feels like he's, he's working through some stuff. Uh, I, I just, I'd like to take the opportunity on, on behalf of myself, and if, if I can be so bold, you, the listeners, to say, uh, uh Herbert, you're right, mate. You're right, pal. We're here if you want to talk. He paused. Very likely these Martians will make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows? Get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. And some, maybe, they will train to hunt us. No, I cried. That's impossible. 
no human being. What's the good of going on with such lies? Said the artilleryman. There's men who do it cheerfully. What nonsense to pretend there isn't. And I succumbed to his conviction. If they come after me, he said. Lord, if they come after me. And subsided into a grim meditation. I sat contemplating these things. I could find nothing to bring against this man's reasoning. In the days before the invasion, no one would have questioned my intellectual superiority to his. I, a professed and recognized writer on philosophical themes, and he, a common soldier. And yet he had already formulated a situation that I had scarcely realized. What are you doing? I said presently. What plans have you made? He hesitated. He's been asked for his homework. What's he got a show? Well, it's like this, he said. What have we to do? We have to invent a sort of life where men can live and breed and be sufficiently secure to bring the children up. Yes, wait a bit and I'll make it clearer what I think ought to be done. Hello, Jack Evans. How are you doing? Hello, Eddie Hurst. I am doing okay for the sake of the audience of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> One of the reasons I wanted to invite, invite you on to speak to you about is about dystopias and utopias. So this is the bit where the artillery man is underground. Yeah, he wants to live in the drains. He's like, we live in the drains because otherwise humanity is going to be wiped out. So we need to create a Morlock drain society. Yeah. So what I've, what I've, 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 I've sort of listed the bullet points of what yeah. the options and the offerings are from okay. the artillery man and i've also put the <laughs> options of what the martians are offering from being captured and run by them because okay. i think often the martians get a short shrift yeah in terms of because you know they so let's go for them okay. first so they land there's a lot of red weed um now yep. you can't eat red weed but no do you we need don't, to it, no you don't need to like there's plenty of land um it yeah. it does affect the water supply a bit but not no. massively. Now, what they are doing is catching humans oh. uh, okay. to eat um, or oh, just to okay. suck their blood. So actually, right, because this is the thing I reckon. <laughs> they need to drink the blood. Not good. Bad yeah, against bad, that. Bad. However, uh-huh. unlike a book like Dracula, uh-huh. they don't complete, like they could just have some of the blood. Good or you point. could do it like, um, like The Matrix. Like, put everyone in, like, a VR situation and then just seep the blood out of them but, while they're in their little utopia. But I don't even think they need to do that. I think there could be a fair a fair deal brokered. Yeah. <laughs> a compromise yeah. with the, the conqueror. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, so here's what yeah. the Martians are offering. So they've offered red, right. red weed. That looks interesting. Okay. Um, yeah. They're re- uh, nice, roomy cages. Uh, Accommodation nice. yeah. for everyone. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, fattening food hello wow don't have to pay for that uh why are they giving you fat why are they giving you fattening food because they're going to eat you they want to suck blood out of clogged arteries apparently they want cholesterol that's actually what they're after <laughs> maybe they're making black pudding <laughs> well, might, um careful breeding oh okay so eugenics um psalms hymns and piety uh is described that's what the artilleryman thinks they'll use to sort of make people accept the martians it's some hymns and that. Oh, so he thinks they're going to use like the British Empire, like forcing everyone to be Christian style stuff. And, and lastly, um, if you're if you don't go in for the Psalms, hymns, and piety, eroticism. Oh, okay, horny, 
Make it horny. Make you horny, horny, horny. Is that? Are you going to have sex with them, or are they? I'm gonna, assuming it's between what, humans. What are they going to do? But you know, it might be yeah, into into, into terrestrial species. Yeah, maybe he's going for the blood thing, isn't he? Yeah. To try to do like a the colonial relationship yeah. is parasitic, yeah, yeah, yeah. so he doesn't want them to just eat them. He's saying like, oh, he's sucking because he's trying to do. Par- he could just have them. Do actual imperialism would make like yeah. plantations or yeah. exploit people, but he he's he's gone for the the body horror of the blood and also the parasitic relationship. You can see what he's doing clunkily. Right, so that's the Martians. This is what the artilleryman's offering you. Yeah? So the first thing is uh, you're going to be eating peas with a knife. That's a big thing. That's really hard. That's really difficult. Why not a spoon or a fork? Is this a selling point? This is meant to be... This is him saying, like, it's going to be tough, but this is our future. Oh, okay. Uh, dropping H's all over the place. Right. I think that's, like, just not saying them rather than, like... <laughs> like, I don't know if there's an H. Like, how? <laughs> just going around yeah. calling people hoes. And this was written before the nuclear bomb existed. So yeah, it can't, yeah, yeah, yeah. can't reference that. Yeah. Uh, so you're underground... But in London, uh-huh. so those prices probably going to keep the price of property. Yeah, but those sewers are expensive. Right, right. People need sewers. Eventually, the Martians will need the sewers as well. Maybe if they want to start piping blood round on mass. That's fair. Actually, yeah, so that's you can true. then charge them rent. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Seize the means of production. <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah, of yeah. The, of the blood. Yeah, you're a sewer landlord, blood lord. Uh, one of the big sound points I think is that he'll let you have a go on a, on one of the Martian tripods. His, his, he's got one where his no not yet so his oh. big aim is that they're gonna take one over and then have a go on it but then still stay just stay in the sewers stay in the subterranean area there's also just to finish this off there's learning so you can learn from books and stuff oh and cricket so mm, that's that's a negative in my view especially in the sewers slippy dark hardball flying at you no 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 you no, miss no. it you gotta pick it up out of the poop mess so which of those would you take uh i mean if it is a binary choice yeah. i'm gonna have to be a sewer guy right, rather okay. than a, a conquered blood donor okay uh but i am i'm not gonna be happy about it okay okay <laughs> what about you uh i don't know I, I mean well not to ruin i do have some insider trading that in about a week oh, i'm shit. gonna be fine as a martian captive <laughs> this is the game that i wanted to play with you they say the future is gonna be this i say the future is gonna be that which do you think is better than which have a go it's the so i thought i'd run past a few utopias with you and see what you think like whether you think they're better or worse than a Martian invasion and living in the sewers. Okay, yeah, and we and we are basing it on the sewer. Yeah, choice. but right, okay, okay. So hypothetically, what I'm we'll get rid of the artillery man, and it's your sewers. Right. So like, oh, okay, say okay. you are you, Jack. They've invaded. Yeah. Uh, they've invaded Manchester, and yeah. you've gone down into the sewers, and yeah. a bunch of people have gone with you. Um, okay, it's like you know, you've got enough people. I'm not saying yeah, it's yeah. like loads. But uh-huh. you've got enough, you know. What skills have they got? Have they got like digging ability? Have we got that? Have we got that? You've, drill man- from you've managed to get down in there. Maybe you can go up and get tools and things. You must have some mm. people. Like you've not got specialists necessarily. There are actually like secret nuclear shelters all under Manchester, which you could get in. Right. 
so you could yeah, use them. Yeah, yeah, okay. Oh, yeah. Okay, so what sick. would you do in your in your underground area? Chill out, wait for the Martians to all die. Yeah. But I don't know they're all going to die. Yeah, I'd say, like, for the sake of this, we're going to put you in, you have as much knowledge as the artillery man. Okay. I, I would, priority one, food. you got to sort your food sure. out. Priority two, heat. Okay. Priority three, protection against rats, which could be easily linked to food. Sure. I don't know how you would grow, would you would cultivate food underground with no sun. That's my... Yeah, that's a Can you just, point. like, turn an electric light on above a plant and it'll photosynthesize? Yeah, you can get certain lights, can't you? Like, there are a lot of hydroponic places around Manchester yeah, like, but... that you could rent. <laughs> <laughs> like... Yeah, okay. One of the guys he's with us is a hardcore drug <laughs> guy and he's got, like, hydroponics. Yeah, But if you, okay. consider, if you think, like, you're in a what? Maybe a, thir- a twenty. Mm. A ten mile radius of where mm-hmm. where we live, and the yeah. people that you can get involved in that. Yeah, someone's got hydroponics. You're probably getting someone with someone's hydroponics. Someone's tooled up. I mean, near yeah. where I live, there is a high a shop called Hydroponics, which sells yeah, it. Which so. is just for growing your uh, your basil and nothing else. I'm sure. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> I bring Dodgy Paul down with me. <laughs> <laughs> he he can be in charge of uh, agriculture <laughs> games room nice <laughs> <laughs> but it'd have to be it'd have to be war of the world's era <laughs> games no no so. no you can do it now you can do it Poker. now i'll let you have oh contemporary yeah, yeah, contemporary yeah. reboot nintendo switch overcooked <laughs> very stressed very stressful uh could... but we only play for morale we only play against like oh actually no you don't want to get overcooked if it's for morale <laughs> <laughs> fucking <hate you. laughs> Maybe uh, Yoshi's Crafted World. In, in my head, your whole sewer system is just an overcooked level. <laughs> like, <laughs> that is what you yeah, pause. Yeah, you got the hydroponics, you got the yeah. rat hunters, and you got to manage the people on the right area. And I'm in the middle shouting, you have to do what I say or we'll, it'll go fucked. Do you want to see the next level? It looks like it's in the clouds. Clearly, like, there's electricity. There's a standard of yeah. living that's probably comparable uh-huh. to 2020. Um, we never need to rise up against the Martians. We just chill in the shadows. <laughs> so I'm going to suggest some famous dystopian slash utopian okay. futures. Because I'm a firm believer that any mm-hmm. dystopian is a utopian for someone. <laughs> it might like well, yeah, it might be for only three people, but they're having a great mm-hmm. time. So yeah, we're living in Elon Musk's utopia right, right now. Right? You know, if yeah, you, and, exactly. Yeah, and okay. I just hope that he like because if there is like a utilitarian measurement of happiness. Maybe uh, he's like so happy that it doesn't matter about the rest. You know what I mean? Like it cancels out. Yeah. His happiness points uh, are so high, yeah. and Jeff Bezos <laughs> is so happy that the <laughs> suffering doesn't matter. Yeah, they're definitely not though. <laughs> look at the pharaohs. <laughs> <laughs> at no point do you look at a pyramid and go, "The man who designed that is happy." I love that. You know the early pyramids where they fucked up the angle and had to change so they went up too steep and then had to change halfway oh, through no, I didn't know this. and then he, he made them <laughs> he made him build another one because he was so angry about Shit. it so there's like a i think it fell apart okay. like, and like the other ones but there's like somewhere there's like a prototype fucked pyramid that doesn't even have everyone buried in it because the guy got so raging here's the first utopian choice Lo- logan's okay. run oh with the yeah with yeah the yeah so logan's run I... to sort of to, to give Listen. a brief synopsis logan's run is a world where nobody lives over a certain age because they have a gem in their palm that if it flashes mm-hmm. you have to go and die yeah. um but other than that your resources are all there 
Um, it ne- it's never really discussed who's in control in that society. It's never clarified because they start. Logan starts. The film's more about Logan running. Right? Yeah, he fam- gets out famously. of there. He gets out of there. Um, and then finds some very weird shit outside. Hardcore ageism. And I, you and I would probably be dead under Logan's Run rules. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all, in a way, that solves many problems. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I'm going to say my uh, Nintendo Switch sewer is probably better than Logan's this Run. This is a testament. On the, on the ageism front. However... Logan's run, I think if your if your gem hasn't gone off, is like pretty amazing, isn't it? Isn't it yeah. like yeah? Like a, okay, like a, isn't it ultra leisure society? Uh, they just they kill they kill off the old because they haven't got enough resources. I think that's got to be it. That's the reasoning behind it. Um, but also, what a what a testament to the entertainment value of the Switch. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? As leader of my sewer society, I might implement Logan's run. <laughs> I might install a diamond um, in everyone <laughs> and tweak it to just like overcooked ability instead <laughs> of age. Like I don't care if you're seventy, if you're sick, at your if you're really efficient at running the hydroponics and rat management, you can stay. Sure. But if someone is if someone is like feeding the hydroponics food to the rats, then their diamond goes like red and yeah, they have sure. to get fucked. That's my answer. Synthesis. Okay. <laughs> All right, uh, 1984, famous, famous. I think when you think of dystopia, this is kind of where most people will first go. Would you rather have that, like the the big brother brooding bureaucracy watch? I want to live in the 1984 that exists in uh, sort of centrist and right-wing people's minds, which is just a world free of racism and sexism. <laughs> 90, if, you, if, if you'd if you never read 1984 and based it just on what pundits tweet about 1984, 1984, you would assume is like fantastic. <laughs> uh, wow, I really wish I was in 1984. Um, unlike the real 1984 when Thatcher was at her peak. Which was really, That was really bad. Now, if, you take, if you're saying sewers versus Thatcher's 1984. That's a tougher chance. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Okay. So, actual 1984 compared to sewers. I'm staying in the okay, sewers, baby. Right. At least Thatcher's dead in the sewers. <laughs> uh, last one, Star Trek. Yeah. So, like, the Enterprise. Like, would you rather live in a Starfleet post-scarcity world or the sewers? This isn't even a question. This isn't even a question. Obviously, Star Trek, okay. deeply problematic. Um, my favorite captain, Ben Sisko from Deep Space Nine, uh, gasses a planet, making it uninhabitable. An entire planet. And is never reprimanded for it. Um, so, <laughs> Star Trek is, but, in many ways, fucked. But he did also write the thong song. So, you know, don't, <laughs> don't write him off straight away. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I know. Yeah, I lo- I love Star Trek. Very the the Starfleet stuff we see is very militaristic. You could it's utopian, but I think you can project different kinds of utopianism onto Star Trek, and I think it is possible, bizarrely, to project a right utopianism onto it as well. Yeah, I don't know. I really like Star Trek, but I also think to see it as uh, it's like utopian escapism, but I think it can be utop- a utopia for people who you don't necessarily agree with, which is a reason like something that is communist propaganda 
can't be as financially successful as <laughs> Star Trek has been. So there's obviously other stuff going on there. And especially in the 60s, all the fucking sexism. You know, like, I'm assuming in your sewer, like, not uh-huh. everybody, at least when they came down there, was, like, mm-hmm. on the same on the same area as you on the political compass, necessarily. No. You know, it's like, oh, shit. Well, my options are Martians, or, like, the only the only thing Listen, that you could... Dodgy Paul the Weed guy is definitely a libertarian. <laughs> right? The only thing that you can all agree on is, one, you like the Switch, which is not uh-huh. necessarily that excru- <laughs> discriminating a factor. <laughs> and two, you'd rather live in a sewer than be captive mm-hmm. to an alien, which uh-huh. also leaves you with some potentially unsavory guests, as well as some more <laughs> outfits. <laughs> I mean, you're losing a lot of the eroticism, is what I'm saying, Jack. Yeah, it's not as... yeah. It's, uh, the sewer isn't as horny as Star Trek. Is that the downside? <laughs> <laughs> but one of the most interesting utopian sci-fi work, in my opinion, which is my favourite sci-fi book of all time, is Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. Have you read this book? Yeah, it's really. I recommend it. I, I, I won't spoil anything for anyone, but I'll I explain the gist of it as it would be on the back of the book or the top of the Wikipedia article, okay. which is that you have a planet which is kind of um, in a co- in an Earth-style Cold War between. Uh, highly authoritarian socialism in the sort of Stalin vein on the one hand and a capitalist side on the other. And then the anarchists, the peaceful sort of Peter Kropotkin type anarchists live on the moon. (laughs) And the moon is fuck, you know, there's nothing, it's quite, you know, there's not much, it's hard to farm on the moon. It's it's hard, you know, the life on the moon is hard mode. A society lives there, an anarchist society, a society that where there's no private property and everything is uh, shared. It's really interesting because it goes through the challenges of uh, living an anarchist life in that situation. And it's like ultra realistic, you know, like it's not, it's not Star Trek style utopianism where it's post scarcity and everything's sorted out. It's like trying to create the kind of society that ethically I would believe in, in a situation, you know, a more challenging situation, which is weird because you think of utopian works as like, you know, being post-scarcity or there being a twist as well. That's the other thing about, you know, we we talk about dystopias, but other other works of utopia where it's like, oh, it seems to be all nice. And then there's like a horrible hidden secret and it's actually all fucked and everyone's drinking everyone else's blood. Like there isn't this twist secret and everything's fucked. It's just like really this uh, really very well thought out uh, exploration okay. of anarchism on a moon um and it's really good and that's my uh that's how i would try to model my okay. sewer society but, um, right so would you if you were offered the moon or sewers though <laughs> which would you go for i think our moon as it is now definitely sewers because okay. uh I mean, for one thing, there's nowhere to charge your switch on the moon. <laughs> what if, what if it was like the future of the moon panel. with the theme park on it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd go there. <laughs> the tame ones will go like all tame beasts. In a few generations, they'll be big, beautiful, rich-blooded, stupid, rubbish. The risk is that we who keep wild will go savage degenerate into a sort of big savage rat you see how i mean to live is underground i've been thinking about the drains of course those who don't know drains will think horrible things but under this london are miles and miles hundreds of miles and a few days rain and london empty will leave them sweet and clean the main drains are big enough and airy enough for anyone 
Then there's cellars, vaults, stores, from which bolting passages may be made to the drains, and the railway tunnels and subways. Hey, you begin to see, and we form a band. Able-bodied, clean-minded men. We're not going to pick up any rubbish that drifts in. Weaklings go out again. I think it might be a good point now to, to notice that this is he's getting kind of eugenics right? Like, able-bodied folk are the only ones that are allowed in here. They've got to have clean minds. Um, right? I, this is definitely H.G. Wells having a bit of a dig at eugenics and a lot of, uh, I think, those uh, those big idealist thoughts that people have uh, to, to try and stamp on their idea of society. Maybe this is a sly dig at that. Uh, I'd recommend, you, if you want to hear more about the eugenics and H.G. Wells' relation with it, to go, go back and listen to the fantastic interviews with Sabadradaz and Simon Gerrier. Uh, they're sort of special one-off ones because we went in quite deep. But uh, hasten to say... Uh, old Herbie G was no fan of eugenics, uh, uh, at least after he had a, a while to think about it. He he definitely was not fond of the idea and, and, and dispelled it. And I think this is his way of getting a few digs in, in a way that his publisher could not say, Are you kidding, Herbie? We're not popping this in here, mate. This has got to go out monthly. Because, of course, as we said, this chapter is a book only, once the, once the story has proven itself to be a smash hit. Anyway, let's see where the artilleryman thinks all these guys should go poo if the drains are being used. You meant me to go? Well, I parlayed, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. You mean you wouldn't have me in, in your clubhouse? Well, you, you asked to be in it, so uh, I'd, I'd let you in. Yeah, mate. Yeah, you're all right by me. Don't, don't worry. Oh, yes, no, that checks out. Very good. Yes, thank you. Those who stop obey orders. Able-bodied, clean-minded women we want also. Mothers and teachers. No lackadaisical ladies. No blasted rolling eyes. We can't have any weak or silly. Life is real again. And the useless and cumbersome and mischievous have to die. They ought to die. They ought to be willing to die. It's a sort of disloyalty, after all, to live and take the race. And they can't be happy. Moreover, dying's none so dreadful. It's the thanking makes it bad. And in all those places we shall gather. Our district would be London. And we may even be able to keep a watch. And run about in the open when the Martians keep away. Play cricket, perhaps. That's how we shall save the race. Eh? It's a possible thing. But saving the race is nothing in itself. As I say, that's only being rats. It's saving our knowledge, and adding to it is a thing. There, men like you come in. Uh, there's books, there's models. We must take, we must make great safe places down deep, and get all the books we can. Not novels and poetry swipes, but ideas. Science books. We must go to the British Museum and pick all those books through. Especially we must keep our science. Learn more. I don't have a jingle for it, but isn't it wild that, like, you can see this thought process still happening now? You know, the sort of thought that the only academic things worthwhile are, are the sciences and, and those sort of ideas. Like, that sort of stuff that could be used for military purpose, the objective, this uh, this thought process. And also that uh, you need people who are able-bodied. They're the only ones who could possibly contribute anything to life with their clear minds. Like, what, how old's this book? That's just over 120 years old, and there's still people who have this thought. And I'm sure 120 years before this was published, there were people with those thoughts. What's my point there? I, I don't know, does it sound profound? Does that sound like something? I, 
I don't know. When I started saying it, it felt like a real wry observation. But now that I have said it, and now that I continue to say it, I'm losing more and more confidence in it as we go. We must watch these Martians. Some of us must go as spies. When it's all working, perhaps I will. Uh, get caught, I mean. And the great thing is, we must leave the Martians alone. We mustn't even steal. If we get in their way, we clear out. We must show them we mean no harm. Yes, I know. But they're intelligent things. And they won't hunt us down if they have all they want. And think we're just harmless vermin. The artilleryman paused and lay a brown hand upon my arm. Uh, I think it's probably safe to assume that he means the artilleryman's brown hand. Not just that the artilleryman has found a brown hand going anywhere. Uh, you know, I'll go out on a limb and say that. After all, it may not be so much that we have to learn before. Just imagine this. Four or five of their fighting machines suddenly starting off. Heat rays left and right. Not a Martian in them, but men. Men who have learned the way how. It may be in my time. Even those men. Fancy having one of them lovely things with its heat ray wide and free. Fancy having it in control. What would it matter if you smashed to smithereens at the end of the run? After a bust like that. I reckon the Martians will open their beautiful eyes. Can't you see them, man? Can't you see them hurrying, hurrying, puffing and blowing and hooting to their other mechanical affairs? Something out of gear in every case? And swish, bang, rattle, swish. Just as they are fumbling over it, swish, comes the heat ray. And behold, man has come back to his own. For a while, the imaginative daring of the artilleryman and the tone of assurance and courage he assumed completely dominated my mind. I believed unhesitatingly both in his forecast of human destiny and in the practicability of his astonishing scheme. And the reader who thinks me susceptible and foolish must contrast his position, reading steadily with all his thoughts about his subject, and mine, crouching fearfully in the bushes and listening, distracted by apprehension. This isn't a book that's played for laughs by any stretch of the imagination, but that, you got to admit, that's a pretty witty line there. That's, uh, that's, uh, he's getting a, he's getting a, I don't know if you can hear that. That's me tapping my glasses going, I get it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a nice, uh, nice little, uh, trite observation there. We talked in this manner through the early morning time, and later crept out of the bushes, and, after scanning the sky for Martians, hurried precipitately to the house on Putney Hill where he had made his lair. It was the coal cellar of the place, and when I saw the work he had spent a week upon, it was a burrow scarcely ten yards long, which he designed to reach to the main drain on Putney Hill. I had my first inkling of the gulf between his dreams and his powers. He reeled us in thinking that the uh, artilleryman had a good plan and whoo, Wells is absolutely rinsing this lad! that he created as a work of fiction to, to be used as a, as, a, as a sort of straw man for an argument. Such a hole I could have dug in a day. But I believed in him sufficiently to work with him all morning until past midday at his digging. We had a garden barrow and shot the earth we removed against the kitchen range. We refreshed ourselves with a tin of mock turtle soup and wine from the neighbouring pantry. Hey, I just wanted to drop in and I mean we know wine, tick, obviously, but mock turtle soup? I, I didn't, I, I, I'd heard of it, but I think I'd only heard of it because of Alice in Wonderland and, you know, the mock turtle in that. 
because uh, of course the only thing you can take away from this podcast is that I have locked myself into Victorian literature and nothing else. <laughs> but mock turtle soup—it's uh, like the name suggests—it's it's mock turtle soup. Uh, so in in like the 1700s when it was created, uh, green turtle soup was all the rage. Oh, couldn't move for it. But soon enough, uh, demand outstripped supply, and they had to make an imitation soup. So they made the uh, mock turtle, uh, which apparently it's big in Cincinnati. So if there's anybody listening from Cincinnati and it's it's popular over there, why don't you? What are you? Let us, let us know. I mean, generally, English cooking has a pretty bad reputation for being gross, weird food. And you look at the mock turtle soup and you think, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, big tick there. <laughs> this looks gross. Horrible. But the wine might be great. I found a curious relief from the aching strangeness of the world in this steady labour. As we worked, I turned his project over in my mind. And presently, objections and doubts began to arise. But I worked there all morning. So glad was I to find myself of purpose again. After working an hour, I began to speculate on the distance one had to go before the cloaca was reached. Wow, cloaca! That's a fun word to say, but what does it mean? Well, it's a type of sewer, as you might have guessed, a sort of entrance, but also, and this is potentially where the name comes from, it's uh, a combination of a uh, dick and bumhole for birds and reptiles. So uh, the bit where the poo comes out, but also the knob might just go... Oh, well, who am I to judge? I am but an explaining lad! The chances we had of missing it altogether my immediate trouble was why we should dig this long tunnel when it was possible to get into the drain at once down one of the manholes and work back to the house. It seemed to me, too, that the house was inconveniently chosen and required a needless length of tunnel. It soon began to dawn on me that I was dealing with a moron. And just as I was beginning to face these things, the artilleryman stopped digging and looked at me. We're working well, he said. He put down his spade. Let's knock off for a bit, he said. I think it's time we reconnoitred from the roof of the house. Oh, God, I'm getting proper divorced. Dad trying his best at a birthday party vibes here, and it is, uh, it's palpable, right? Can you feel that? Oh. I was for going on, and after a little hesitation, he resumed his spade. And then suddenly, I was struck by a thought. I stopped, and so did he at once. Why were you walking about the common? I said. Instead of being here, taking the air, he said. I was coming back. It's safer by night. But the work. Oh, one can't always work, he said. And in a flash, I saw the man plain. He hesitated, holding his spade. We ought to reconnoitre now, he said. Because if any come near, they may hit the spades and drop upon us unawares. I was no longer disposed to object. We went together to the roof and stood on a ladder peeping out of the roof door. No Martians were to be seen, and we ventured out onto the tiles and slipped down under the shelter of the parapet. From this position, a shrubbery hid the greater portion of Putney. But we could see a river below, a bubbly mass of red weed, and the low parts of Lambeth flooded and red. The red creeper swarmed up the trees about the old palace, and their branches stretched gaunt and dead, and set with shriveled leaves from amid its clusters. It was strange how entirely dependent both these things were upon flowing water for their propagation. 
About us, neither had gained a footing. Laburnums, pink maize, snowballs and trees of arborvitae rose out of the laurels and hydrangeas, green and brilliant into the sunlight. Beyond Kensington, dense smoke was rising, and that in a blue haze hid the northward hills. The artilleryman began to tell me of the sort of people who still remained in London. One night last week, he said, some fools got the electric lighting order, and there was all Regent Street and the circus ablaze, crowded with painted and ragged drunkards, men and women dancing and shouting till dawn. A man who was there told me, and as the day came, they became aware of a fighting machine standing nearby the Langham, looking down at them. Heaven knows how long it had been there. It must have given some of them quite a nasty turn. He came down the road towards them and picked up nearly a hundred too drunk or frightened to run away. Grotesque gleam of a time no history will ever fully describe. I mean, yeah, you hear about this all the time, don't you? Like in, in World War II in London there were blitz parties. Uh, I certainly heard about stuff from my grandparents, one, one of them who grew up... Uh, she wasn't evacuated and, uh, I mean, it wasn't like she wasn't going down to the circus and they had the lights on and she was dancing because she was, what, about maybe seven or eight? But definitely, like, this weird vibe that isn't isn't captured during a, a war front is certainly certainly true and uh, quite a, quite an interesting observation and something that, for a work of fiction, is, is uh, re- really accurate. Uh, what's my point here? Uh, it's not really a joke. I mean, I don't know about you guys. I think this is, like, the best chapter so far. I think... HG being given the space to breathe and actually just make a single bit of narratives, uh, paying dividends, uh, which does feel slightly condescending. Uh, but then again, I have been dunking on him for about a whole podcast, so so why why quit now, right? Uh, anyway, I'm having a good time. That's uh, what I plan to say here. Uh, and and also, I don't know if if anybody else feels like this, but uh, especially for UK listeners, um, there's a show called The Inbetweeners, uh, and I'm getting proper J from The Inbetweeners vibe off of the artillerymen here. I don't know if anyone else is, uh, but I just, I feel like uh, that'd be a strong casting. Strong casting there. From that, in answer to my questions, he came round to his grandiose plans again. He grew enthusiastic. He talked so eloquently of the possibility of capturing a fighting machine that I more than half believed in him again. But now that I was beginning to understand something of his quality, I could not divine the stress he laid on doing nothing precipitately. And I noted now there was no question that he personally was to capture and fight this great machine. Hey, this guy's a dreamer. There's nothing wrong with that. He's got a dream. To kill! After a time, we went down to the cellar. Neither of us seemed disposed to resume digging. And when he suggested a meal, I was nothing loath. He became suddenly very generous. And when we had eaten, he went away and returned with some excellent cigars. We lit these, and his optimism glowed. He was inclined to regard my coming as a great occasion. There's some champagne in the cellar, he said. We can dig better on this Thameside Burgundy, said I. No, he said. I'm host today. Champagne, great God, we've a heavy enough task before us. Let us take rest and gather strength while we may. Look at these blistered hands. And pursuant to this idea of a holiday, he insisted upon playing cards after we had eaten. He taught me euchre. Ah, narrator, let him have a day off. He's only done about ten foot anyway. What's this going to do? Let him have a little break. Have a little bit of time with him. It'll add to your journal you're working on. What are you, scared that Martians are going to find you and kill you before you dig to safety? Actually, no, no, I've said it out loud. That seems kind of fair. And after dividing London between us, I taking the north side and he the southern, we played for parish points. Grotesque and foolish as this will seem to the sober reader, it is absolutely true. 
And what is more remarkable, I found the card game and several others we played extremely interesting. Not only did I play games, but I liked them. So shove that in your reader's pipe and smoke it. Mate, nobody's saying you can't enjoy the game, that's fine. Well, I did, so there. Alright. Strange mind of man. That, with our species upon the edge of extermination or appalling degradation, with no clear prospect before us but the chance of a horrible death, we could sit following the chance of this painted pasteboard and playing the Joker with vivid delight. Now, before you even think it, no, they're not just sat there dressed in clown makeup like Whackin' Phoenix watching the weird Todd Phillips film that somehow seems to have culture cachet. No, they're playing a board game. <laughs> could you imagine? Like, although it makes about as much sense, doesn't it? Like, you, the end of the world is knocking on your door. So what do you do? You clown up. Clown up, mate. That's their Joker origin story to uh, quote Twitter in a way that makes me feel sick. Afterwards, he taught me poker, and I beat him at three tough chess games. When dark came, we decided to take the risk and lit a lamp. After an interminable string of games, we supped, and the artilleryman finished the champagne. We went on smoking the cigars. He was no longer the energetic regenerator of his species I had encountered in the morning. He was still optimistic, but it was a less kinetic, a more thoughtful optimism. I remember he wound up with my health, proposed in a speech of small variety and considerable intermittence. I took a cigar and went upstairs to look at the lights of which he had spoken that blazed so greenly along the Highgate Hills. So, obviously, the artilleryman is drunk, He's made some speeches, he's made a toast to the narrator. I love that of all the speeches he's heard today, the one that he switches off at is just some nice words about him, just proposing to his health, like, oh God, he's got to say something nice about me. Well, that is the last straw. I'm going upstairs to look at some lights. At first, I stared unintelligently across the London Valley. The northern hills were shrouded in darkness. The fires near Kensington glowed redly. And now and then, an orange-red tongue of flame flashed up and vanished in the deep blue night. All the rest of London was black. Then, nearer, I perceived a strange light. A pale, violet-purple fluorescent glow, quivering under the night breeze. For a space, I could not understand it. And then I knew that it must be the red weed from which this faint irradiation proceeded. With that realisation, my dormant sense of wonder, my sense of proportion of things, awoke again. I glanced from that to Mars, red and clear, glowing high in the west, and then gazed long and earnestly at the darkness of Hampstead and Highgate. I remained a very long time upon the roof, wondering at the grotesque changes of the day. I recalled my mental states from the midnight prayer to the foolish card playing. I had a violent revulsion of feeling. I remember I flung away the cigar with a certain wasteful symbolism. That'll make you feel less guilty, a symbolic cigar flick, won't it? That'll, uh, that'll sort you right out. It's interesting, isn't it, that, like, um, I feel like if you were reading this nowadays, as we are, um, you sort of see that this is obviously, like, a little break he needs, like, a section of normality, a bit of civilization to experience, to remind himself that, that he is a human and he is of the human race and life is still going on. Uh, but obviously, in this, he's just using it to, to beat himself up and feel like he should be doing more, which I don't know if that's just H.G. Wells working through something or if that's that's sort of an attitude of the book at the time, but it's uh, it's it's something. Uh, let's Hold on, let me get my... 
sheet of paper will uh, we'll mark this up as not quite a joke, but uh, sort of insightful. Yeah, I'll pop that there. Ick. It's a lot of them. My folly came to me with blaring exaggeration. I seemed a traitor to my wife and to my kind. I was filled with remorse. I resolved to leave this strange, undisciplined dreamer of great things to his drink and gluttony, and go on into London. There, it seemed to me, I had the best chance of learning what the Martians and my fellow men were doing. I was still upon the roof when the late moon rose. So there you have it guys, I mean what a, what a hell of a boy, so much happens. Do you think you'd, do you think you'd go live underground with him? I don't know. So many ideas compared to the actual physical execution, it feels very much like a preview for a comedy show. And whilst we're talking about previews for a comedy show, why not come down and see some of mine? Uh, so I've got, got, like I said before, uh, 16th of April in London at the Museum of Comedy. Uh, come along to that, it'd be great to have you there. Uh, I'm also in Buxton at some point in July. I'm in Manchester on the 28th of July with Blizzard Comedy. Um, I'm in Brighton on the 4th to the 6th of June uh, at the Electric Arcade. Uh, and I'm also at the Edinburgh Fringe uh, later on in the year too, which is uh, the 16th to the 24th of August at the Mash House with the tonic uh please do like subscribe rate this podcast and follow me at eddie hurst on twitter instagram facebook and i'll see you in in a couple of weeks time for chapter eight where i've invited the comedy collective chunks to come along a few of the guys from that uh, and, and join me in reading through it uh, a bit like how we did with delightful sausage so i will see you in a couple of weeks for chapter eight which is dead london thanks very much guys see you soon bye